History shows us a really important truth that wars a lot of times are won based on who's on your side. Not by the strength of the army, not by all these other factors, but a lot of times who is on your side. For example, the American Revolution. It looked like the British were going to win. And then all of a sudden, here come the French taking our side. And of course, the rest is history. In World War II, after the Allies suffered many setbacks, all of a sudden, one of the world's superpowers was drawn into the war. And I don't want to overemphasize our efforts there, but the war changed because of that. And I think not just history shows that, but elementary kickball shows that. I remember back when I was in elementary school and we used to play kickball during recess. And of course, you know how it works. You got the two team captains in there. You know, all the rest of us are lined up there and they're picking. You know, well, I want that, that kid, that kid. And I just want to go ahead and just tell you, y'all probably already know this, but I was the last kid picked always. Nobody wanted me on their team. But there's one thing that I remember about kickball. There was one or two kids that if you got them on your team, it didn't matter how good the other team was. If they were on your side, you were going to win the game. A lot of times we feel like that in life, don't we? We, we feel like, man, there's so much going on. We're facing so many overwhelming odds. If only the right person was on my side, then I could get through it. Right? I mean, as we're going through problems, man, if only I could have mom or dad there on my side. If only I could have my spouse there, you know, on my side. Maybe my children. I could just have somebody on my side. That would, that would change the course of, of the situation I'm facing. And what we're going to see this morning is that if we're in Christ, we do have somebody on our side. Somebody far better than any human relationship that we have. Better than any mom. Better than any dad. Better than any spouse or child. As Paul is writing to the church in Rome... He's reminding them of all that God has done for them in Christ. He just lays it out for them in the entire book, all that God has done for them in Christ. And at the climax of his letter, he summarizes salvation by telling the Romans that God is for them, that He's on their side, and that that changes everything. So it doesn't matter what they would face or who would oppose them. God is on their side and nothing, no situation, not even death, can separate them from His love. And that's so important for them because the church in Rome would suffer tremendously. History tells us of, of all of the unjust rulers like Nero, who killed Christians, who persecuted Christians. But they had unshakable hope even while they were being killed because they knew that the right person was on their side. And here we are some 2,000 years later and the truth is still the same for us. If we're in Christ, God loves us with an unconditional, overwhelming love. 
He's on our side. So let's read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors. We are more than victorious through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Father, as we come to Your Word, we come to Your Word humbly, acknowledging that Your Word is Your mouth. Lord, we don't, we don't come looking for, for signs. We don't come wondering what you would say to us. We come to your word saying, this is it. And so, Father, as we do that, I pray that you would cause each and every person in the room to humbly submit themselves to it. And, Father, today, as we look at the glories of what you've done for us, I pray that we would be moved to worship. pray that we would be moved to trust you. Lord, I pray if there's somebody in here who has never trusted you, that they would be moved this morning to receive you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> so three incredible truths that we find in this passage. If you are in Christ, and that's the key, if you are in Christ, if you are His, if you've trusted Him as your Savior, your Lord, if you are saved by His grace, then three truths that apply to you. First of all, God is for you. Your judgment has already been made. And finally, nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing can separate you from His love. Look at the first point there. God is for you. Look at verse 31. He starts out by saying, What then shall we say to these things? Well, what is he talking about there? What are the things that he's talking about? Well, I, I think he's talking about everything from chapter 5 of Romans until this point. He is talking about all of the things that God has done for us in Christ. We have peace with God. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Jesus is the better Adam who leads us to life. Sin was bringing us death, but Jesus has given us life. Christ released us from the curse of the law. Christ gives us victory over the flesh. 
There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. God gives us His Spirit which leads us to righteousness. We are heirs and children of God. We get to call Him Father. We have a future hope that no suffering can take away. The Spirit helps us commune with God even when we're too weak to do so. From eternity past to eternity future, God has set His affection on us. All of these things from chapter 5 to chapter 8 that the book of Romans tells us that is ours in Christ. Paul's now stepping back and saying, well, what are we going to say about all this? If we had to boil it all down, what can we say about it? And this is the truth that he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the reality, church. If you wanted to boil down all that God has done for us, the one conclusion you would have to reach, the one truth that Paul reaches, is God is indeed for us. Some of you need to hear that today. If you're in Christ, it does not matter how you feel, God is for you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you because of your weakness. He is for you. He is on your side. And that has two implications for it. And the first one is, whoever is against us is irrelevant. Notice what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Now notice, Paul is not getting at, he's not saying, oh, you have no enemies. We know that's not true. He's not saying you've got no obstacles. We know that's not true. He's not saying you're not going to have any suffering. We know that's not true. But notice what he says. He's not saying you're not, you don't have it. He's saying no enemy can ultimately be victorious over the believer because God is on our side. So listen, it does not matter who's against you. It doesn't matter the weakness that we have. It doesn't matter all of these things. God is on our side. So no matter what our enemy is or who it is, it's irrelevant. They're not stronger than God. The second implication is that God will give us everything that we need. Notice where he goes next with this in verse 32. How do we know that God is for us? He gave us His Son. Verse 33, look at what it says, or 32 rather. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Look at this next part. How will He not with Him graciously give us all things? He's saying the, the foundation of God being on our side is what Jesus has done. The demonstration, you want to know that God is on your side? You want to know that He's never going to leave? Look at the cross. He gave us the thing of ultimate value. He gave us His own Son. And so here's what Paul says next. This is where this, the rubber really meets the road. If He gave us His Son, how much more will He give us what we need in the here and now? Look at what he's saying. If He didn't... Hold back, giving you His Son. Don't you think that He's going to give you all that you need? I remember 
When we first moved to North Carolina, we didn't have any scholarships or grants when we moved. And, and to be honest with you, I, we got up there and, and I was kind of scared because I'm like, well, I've got enough saved to pay maybe for one semester or two semesters, but then I've got no savings, I've got no job, what am I going to do? How are we going to make it? And, and one day I received a phone call that would just change everything. One day I received a phone call that I was going to receive a very gracious scholarship that would cover everything. And that's literally what the donors, that's all that they said. They didn't give any details about how it was going to be you know, dished out. They just said, we're, we're endowing this scholarship that's going to cover everything for the recipient. So it was great. We were excited. So I went to the financial aid office to, to hash out the details. And I remember the, the financial aid officer was sitting there telling me, you know, wow, this is, this, this is huge. Not many people have, have opportunities like this, have scholarships like this. And so he's going through saying, well, it'll pay for this, it'll pay for this, it'll pay for your housing, it'll pay for your tuition. And he just, all these big things that it's going to cover. And I mean, I was just overwhelmed by it. And I remember asking him a question. I said, sir, is this going to cover my books? And I remember his response. Don't you think it's, I mean, if it's covering all this, of course it's going to cover your books. I mean, at that point, that was, the, that was like the smallest thing. I mean, it's covering all these other big things. Don't you think it's going to cover your books as well? And here's the point, church. Whatever you're facing this morning, and some of you are, are bearing overwhelming burdens, some of you are bearing burdens that nobody else here knows about except you. If God has done all of this for you, don't you think that he's going to pay for your books? If, if God has given his son to you, don't you think he's going to give you whatever else you need? Listen, God did not call you out of your old life of sin to let you die in the wilderness. And so, whatever you're facing here this morning, look at the cross. I want you to look at all that God has done for you in Christ. Look at all that God has given up for you. And then I want you to rest and know that it's going to be alright. It's going to be alright. You're going to make it. You'll make it through by His grace. The second truth we see in this passage is that your judgment has already been made if you're in Christ. Your judgment has already been made. Paul asks another question. <coughs> who, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring any charge against us? Notice what he calls us, though. I love it. He doesn't say, notice... Or he doesn't say, uh, who, who's going to bring any charge against the believers? Who's going to bring any charge against the Christians? Oh, the, the term he uses for us, the title he uses for us is God's elect. Why does he say that? Paul is highlighting who we are, not from our perspective, but from God's perspective. Paul is highlighting his perspective. We are His chosen ones. And here's what that means. 
God's view of us doesn't depend on our fickle faith, but on His choice. And, and here's why that's important. I want you to hear this. This is where this, is where this comes down in, in daily life. Because there's going to be times in our, in our life where we feel like our grip is loosening. We feel like we're about to let go. We feel like the circumstances of life are causing us to uh, abandon Christ, to let go of Him. We feel like we're slipping. And then exactly when we hit that moment, that's when we realize He's been holding on to us the whole time. He's not going to let our foot stumble. He's not going to let us fall away. He's going to keep us until the end. And so when you look at what he's saying, he's looking at God's perspective here and he's saying, look, you are His. You're His chosen one. You're not going to fail. You're not going to fall away. You are going to persevere until the end. And notice what he says, God is the one who justifies. He's saying there's no one to condemn because God Himself is the one who justified us. That word justified means to declare not guilty, to acquit. It's a, it's a judicial term, a courtroom term. And so the idea here is there's no one left to condemn us because God is the one who justified us. There's no one stronger than Him. There's no higher authority in the universe than Him. So when He says... Because of what Christ has done, I find you not guilty. That means there's no one who's going to be able to come and overturn that. There's no Supreme Court that's going to be able to review that case. He is the Supreme One. That's why in Romans 8.1, earlier in the chapter, he starts the chapter, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're in Christ, there's no one to condemn us. Now, the accuser is going to come and try to do so. Our consciences are going to come and try to do it. Our minds are going to tell us, man, you, you, you're guilty. All of these things are going to come and accuse us and try to tell us how guilty we are. But that's when we cling to the truths like this that says God has saved us. He has justified us. And so when the accuser comes to us, we look up and see Christ standing there and we're like, man, He is my righteousness. I don't need my own righteousness. I'm trusting in Him. He is the one who declared us not guilty and so we don't need to walk based on our feelings. When you get up in the morning and you feel like, man, I'm a failure of a Christian, that's when you need to hold on to the truth that he has saved you. He's not going to let you go. And you were accepted and loved because of Jesus. He tells us why. Why God has justified us. Look at the next verse there. Or the next part of verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. How is it that God can justify us? Well, Paul turns his attention really quick and says, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one, he says, who more than that was raised from the dead. <clears throat> Jesus is the one who is standing right now <coughs> at God's side interceding for us. 
He died in our place. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that we should all memorize, is so rich for our sake. He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. Even though Jesus knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying there is that Jesus was our substitute when He died. That when Jesus died, He died in my place. So that means when God looks at me, even though I am a sinner, even though I have sinned against God, He looks at me and He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And that means that on the cross, when He was looking at His Son, He didn't see the righteousness of His Son. He saw the ugliness of my sin. Jesus paid for it. But He doesn't leave Jesus in the grave. He says more than that, Jesus was raised from the dead. He came out of the grave. There's an empty tomb in the Middle East. And, and here's where that it gets really relevant for us. The very same power that raised Him from the dead lives in us. The very same life-giving power that rose Him from the dead is the very same power that's transforming us and making us new. And notice the last thing he says. Not only did Jesus die for us, not only was he raised for us, but now he is interceding for us. He's interceding for us. He's our high priest. I love how Hebrews 4 puts it. Since we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. Let's not waver. Let's not, let's not abandon the faith. Let's hold fast our confession. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect, respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. I love verse 16. This is, this is why it's important that Jesus is interceding for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you. So whenever you need help, you know where you can go. When we sin, we want to run away from God, but what we see here because of Jesus, instead of running away, God says, no, I, I know you've messed up. I want you to run to me. Because when you run to me, you have a high priest who's interceding for you, who uh, will get you grace and help. And so if Christ is the foundation, if he is the key to all of these blessings, then what's going to separate us from him? That's the question, right? If we are in Christ, well, how, what, about, what if we get out of Christ? If we are in Christ, well, what if we change our minds later and we decide, well, no, this, this isn't for me? What if we face hardship so strong that we can't make it? Notice the answer to that question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ, is nothing. So just follow his train of thought here. God is for you. You're already justified in Christ. The judgment about you has already been made. You have been found not guilty. And now he's saying, what's going to separate you from the love of Christ? And look at what he says here. Nothing that we have faced or will face can separate us from Christ's love. Is that tribulation? No. 
or distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Danger? No. Sword? No. Now listen, Paul's writing this, and, and Paul has been through it. If anybody knows about suffering that might get separate you from God's love, it's the Apostle Paul. He writes about his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. So he's been beaten. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. He's saying, on top of all of this, I'm worried day and night about all of the churches that I help plant and wondering how they're doing. And yet Paul writes these words. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. Not even death. Not even our ancient enemy can separate us. Paul quotes from Psalm 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's acknowledging that they are facing intense persecution. They are being killed for their faith. But he's saying, despite this suffering, as bad as it is, not even that can separate us from his love. Our victory comes through knowing him. He says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. We're more than victorious through him. And finally, Paul, his personal experiences gives him assurance that nothing in all creation. He says, my, my translation says, for I am sure, but many say, for I am convinced. Paul's saying, hey, I'm convinced in all that I've been through, in all that I've seen, in all the suffering I've endured, of all the people that I've seen killed, I am sure of this one thing. Verse 38. Neither death nor life not even death, not even the things we face in life. Nor angels, nor rulers. There's no cosmic being that will separate us. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Everything that we face here and everything that we will ever face, nothing can separate us from His love. Nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Paul, just in case he missed it, just in case he missed something, he said, anything in creation, anything in the universe, there is nothing that can separate us from His love. That is His overwhelming love. That love is the love that comes and gets us when we fall. That love is the love that when we sin, still comes for us and says, I love you with an everlasting love. That is the love that when we face suffering, when we face heartache, when we face loss, the love that comes to us and says, I'm still here and I will never leave you or forsake you. That is God's overwhelming love. And He says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Keith and Kristen Getty wrote the song that we just sung, 
No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. We see in this passage that God's for you if you're in Christ. We see that he uh, has declared you not guilty. Your judgment has already been made. And finally, we see that nothing can separate you from his love if you're in Christ. God loves us with an unconditional, overwhelming love. And so, in just a second, we're going to sing. We're going to sing a song of response, and then we're going to take the table together. We're going to go to the table of the Lord's Supper. And the question I have for us is very simply, this the same question that Paul asks. Mount Carmel, what then shall we say to these things? What are we going to say to these things? Are you going to trust Him? You're going to, you're going to lay your suffering down at the cross and say, Lord, I, I trust You and I'm, I'm, I'm with You? Maybe some of you here this morning need to say, Lord... I have not been living in a way that honors you. And in light of all you've done for me, I'm going to repent and, and seek you. Maybe for some of you here this morning, you're not a Christian. There's no evidence of, of, of salvation in your life. There's been no change. And for you, simply the, the response today is just to come and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you for the first time. As we stand and as we sing in just a moment, I encourage you to let the Holy Spirit examine your life. And you respond to God's Word as He leads you to do. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, we thank You of the promises that you've given us in your word. We're grateful. Lord, I pray that this would move us to worship. It would move us to repent. It would move us to commit ourselves even more to you. Father, I pray that you would bring people in this room this morning. You would bring somebody from death to life. You would bring them from darkness to light. That Lord, there, that there would be somebody in this place here this morning that would say, you know, I'm tired of rejecting God's call on my life. I'm tired of, of saying no. And today, Lord, I'm going to say yes. Lord, as we approach the supper, the Lord's Supper, that represents your crushed body and your blood, I pray, Lord, that we would be moved and grateful, that we would find ourselves committed to you, that we would find ourselves with renewed passion over what you've done. In Jesus' name.